Today on The Matt Walsh Show, as climate change alarmists become more frantic about our alleged impending doom, they have also started to sound more and more genocidal. We'll discuss. Plus, the left now claims that abortion bans are a racist conspiracy to ensure that more white babies are born. Of course, this claim completely contradicts all of the facts. And Tucker Carlson is criticized for urging young people to get married and have kids, if you can imagine. What a terrible thing. And our daily cancellation, a tragic story of sexism and patriarchy. It'll be hard to talk about, but we must. All of that and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Well, if you haven't looked over your budget in a while, now may be a good time. See what your biggest expenses are, where you can cut back, and find ways to make an impact. And now is, now is definitely the time to do that. If you're a homeowner, your equity is up 20%, and it can be accessed as cash for everything that you need. Uh, you, all you got to do if you want to access it is call American Financing. You can get a free mortgage review and let them look at your entire financial picture. It's so easy on your end. All you got to do is just give them a call. From your home loan to your equity, even your high interest debt, they'll uh, review all of it, and they'll do everything they can to help you save up to $1,000 a month. Think of the difference that can make. We're all looking for ways to save uh, these days, and this is one way you can do it. If you're, even if your credit isn't great, just give them a call and see what they can do. I'm sure they can help you. It only takes 10 minutes when you call, and what you have to call is the number 866-569-4711. That's 866-569-4711, or visit AmericanFinancing.net, NMLS, 182334, NMLS, when I went to Africa visiting the Maasai tribe for my film, What is a Woman?, I, of course, discovered that uh, gender theory simply doesn't exist in that part of the world at all. We had so much to talk about around that subject that I didn't have time to ask them about other Western liberal inventions, which is probably for the best, because they already thought that I was insane enough as it was. But I imagine that if I'd continued down the left-wing checklist, we would have gotten the same guffaws and confused head-scratching and looks of pity and this includes, especially includes, actually, the subject of environmentalism. I'm pretty certain that if I'd asked the Maasai how they feel about the environment and whether they identify as environmentalists, the question would have made as much sense as asking them whether men can have babies. And this would hold true all across the non-Western world. Like gender theory, environmentalism is a modern, liberal, Western luxury belief system. And one that we've been hearing about more and more in recent weeks as the left rediscovers the insidious phenomenon known as summer. That's not to say that, that people in non-Western regions don't respect nature or try to preserve its beauty and character. I mean, the Maasai live much closer to nature, are much, much more in tune with it, dependent on it, absorbed in it and by it, than the college-educated liberal who opines about the beauty of nature from the comfort of his urban apartment whose window provides him a view of uh, concrete and steel and glass and nothing that can be called natural at all. He loves nature, yet lives as far from it as he can get. He takes pride in his quote-unquote green lifestyle, but the only green he sees is a few tufts of grass on a median strip. He also may encounter the green hues of a Mountain Dew billboard or of the various suspicious liquids on the sidewalk of unknown and unspeakable origins. He doesn't love nature more than the people who actually live in it, but he has made an ism of it. And it's the ism that is unique and would be incoherent to most people in most parts of the world. In fact, the ism, environmentalism, is incoherent to most people in this part of the world too. I mean, folks living out in the country have, have heard of environmentalism, but none of them identify with it or buy it. Go out to the country, go out to a rural area and ask them, uh, any environmentalists here? You're, you're going to get just blank stares. 
Environmentalism is an ideology for people who are the most far removed and shielded from the environment and can therefore afford to fetishize it. It's an ideology for people like George Monbiot. He's an author and an award-winning journalist who has in recent years been on a crusade to save the environment by pushing for the abolition of farming. He appeared on a news show in Ireland last week to deliver his standard indictment of the practice. Let's listen to that. It's by far and away the greatest cause of habitat destruction, the greatest cause of wildlife loss, the greatest cause of extinction, greatest cause of soil loss, greatest source of fresh water use. It's one of the greatest causes of climate breakdown, um, bigger than transport, um, one of the primary causes of water pollution and of air pollution. So it's right at the top. Oh, and sorry, I forgot to say land use, the biggest issue of all. It's by far and away the greatest um, um, uh, form of land use that, that humans um, inflict on the planet, which means all that land is land which can't be used for wild ecosystems. And while obviously we need farming, we need to minimise those impacts. We, we need um, to act as drastically within that sector as any other sector to prevent the collapse of our life support systems. And what that means above all else is getting out of livestock farming, is really shutting down animal farming altogether because that has massively disproportionate impacts on the living planet. And we need to switch towards other sources of food, plant-based diets, which are far more efficient, far lower environmental impacts, but also switch out of farming altogether to produce protein-rich foods, which we can do through precision fermentation, brewing George, microbes. I can hear farmers all over this small country of ours shocked and perhaps screaming at their televisions because they're saying, are you saying all animal farming, in, in, in your opinion, really needs to stop? Yes, it does. It really does. Um, it's a bit like leaving fossil fuels in the ground. Unless we do that, we've really got very little chance indeed of preventing this domino effect of system collapse right across Earth okay. systems, which basically makes the planet uninhabitable. So eating meat and milk and eggs is an indulgence we cannot afford. Now, we know that George is an anti-human psychopath based on the fact that, as we see in the video there, he hangs his picture frames from wires suspended from the ceiling. His home decor is exactly the sort of thing that you see right before you're skinned alive and dismembered. Of course, for liability and legal reasons, I am not directly alleging that George is a serial killer. I'm just saying that I would be surprised if he wasn't. And whether he personally murders people or not, we do know that he subscribes to a murderous ideology. Climate alarmists like George are anti-human, anti-civilization. They see all of humanity, well, most of it anyway, with the exception of themselves, as a blight, a stain, a parasite on the face of the earth. Just listen to his word choice. This is what these people always say. They always say stuff like this. He says that farming is the worst form of land use that humans inflict on the planet and that we're hogging land, which could be better used by flowers and bees and caterpillars and other non-sentient life forms. Environmentalism is, it is not an exaggeration to say, a genocidal ideology. That's always been the case, but usually they're not as open about it as George is in this clip. He obviously knows that we can't produce cricket energy bars and tofu burgers quickly enough and distribute them widely enough to feed everybody. He says that livestock farming, eating eggs and drinking milk is a mere indulgence that the planet can't afford to support any longer. Yet billions of people in the world depend on livestock, livestock farming to survive, especially in poor countries. The Messiah subsists almost entirely on goats and cows. 
Take those away and they'll all starve to death. Billions of people will starve along with them. Environmentalists know this and they're just okay with it. More than okay, it's what they want. Mass starvation is, as they say, a feature, not a bug. You really can't be anti-farming without being anti-civilization. Human civilization is based on agriculture. It was born from and by agriculture. It was only after the development of agriculture that civilizations formed in the first place. The Neolithic Revolution saw humanity move away from primitive, nomadic, hunter-gatherer societies, societies that could not really thrive or grow on any kind of wide scale, to the cultivation of plants and animals and the forming of organized permanent settlements. It's not an exaggeration to say that, that people like George literally want to bring us back to the Stone Age. They want to reverse the clock by about 10,000 years, give or take. Now, such a move would be disastrous for all the billions of poor people who would immediately perish, but it would also be a disaster for urban environmentalists who li whose lives depend entirely on the very farmers they abhor. That's the other thing about climate alarmists. They, they, these people, they, they don't have the skills to survive in the world they're trying to create. They have no skills at all, most of them. That's why so few of the climate change chicken littles have put their money where their mouths are and forsaken modern technology to go live in self-sustaining communes in the woods. A few of them have, very few. The vast majority of them have not sacrificed even one ounce of modern luxury or convenience. They profess that an environmental apocalypse is upon us. The, the exact details change three times a week, of course, but there's always an apocalypse. That they maintain. And yet they continue to live exactly as they've always lived. Exactly as the rest of us live. Exactly as they insist we should not be living. They haven't even relocated to higher ground for fear that the sea will soon engulf them. In fact, many of them specifically congregate right near the coastlines. Why is that? You know, if I were in their boat and believed what they claim to believe, first I would actually, well, I would actually build a boat probably. And I would do many other things. I would, I would feel morally obligated to take extreme measures. As a member of the enlightened few, as a person who knows that human life is about to be eradicated and who knows why and even when, I would feel an incredible burden of responsibility. If I knew that, that driving my car, turning on my lights, shopping at the mall, and, and generally going about my day immersed in modern luxury were all directly causing the current and future deaths of millions of people, I couldn't continue engaging in those legal, lethal activities at all. I would see it as an, an act of extreme moral recklessness, if not murder, to saunter along as usual. My conscience would compel me to ensure that I am not responsible personally for the carnage that is about to occur and is already occurring, they tell us. I mean, they say that, that when, when, you, when you use your car or when you do any of these modern things, you're actually, you're creating like hurricanes and tornadoes. You are doing that. Well, if I believe that, I just, I could never get in a car ever again. I could never use electricity ever again. How could a person who believes what they allegedly believe possibly arrive at any other conclusion? And yet they do continue along like everything is fine. I mean, they say otherwise. They say that things are not fine. That's not how they live. Is that because they don't actually believe most of this stuff? That's what I suspect. Speaking of which, Al Gore appeared on Meet the Press on Sunday to say that people who don't join him in his panicking over the climate are just like the police officers in Uvalde. Listen to this. You know, the climate deniers uh, uh, are really in some ways similar to all of those uh, almost 400 law enforcement officers in Uvalde, Texas, 
who were waiting outside an unlocked door uh, while the children were being massacred. They heard the screams. They heard the gunshots. And uh, nobody stepped forward. And God bless those families who've suffered so much. And law enforcement officials tell us that's not typical of what uh, law enforcement usually does. And confronted with this global emergency, what we're doing with our inaction and failing to walk through the door and stop the killing uh, is not typical of what we are capable of as human beings. We do have the solutions. And I think these extreme events that are getting steadily worse and more severe are really beginning to change minds. We have to have uh, unity as a nation to come together and stop making this a political football. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. I feel the need to uh, always remind everyone, every time I hear this phrase, climate deniers, that there's there's no such thing as a climate denier. Nobody denies that we live in a climate. No one is denying the climate exists. No one's even denying that the climate is changing because climates always change. No one's denying any of that. What some of us are denying is the apocalyptic forecast that people like Al Gore are telling us about. And we have good reason to deny it because they've given us many of these forecasts and they've all turned out to be wrong, every single one. Anyway, at least Al Gore doesn't look as much like a serial killer as the other guy, though he does physically resemble more and more like a villain from a Saturday morning cartoon. He looks like something that someone actually drew. It doesn't look like a person. And here he shames us in the strongest terms, saying that if you're not losing your mind over our alleged impending environmental doom, you're, a, you're morally analogous to a person who cowers outside of a classroom while children are shot. These are strident words, of course, for a guy who lives in a 10,000 square foot mansion that uses 20 times more electricity than average. But Gore's hypocrisy is so well known that it's just almost a cliche. The hypocrisy of environmentalists in general is widely understood and discussed. And yet the fact that these people don't seem to actually believe what they're saying remains extremely relevant, I think, and can't be pointed out enough. And even if I'm wrong, even if they do believe this stuff, the fact is that they're still in a bind of their own making. They militate against modern society and its luxuries, but they're utterly dependent on it. Their ideology puts them at war with their own lifestyles, a lifestyle of helpless dependence. So when they come out against electricity and fossil fuels and farming and all the rest, they are sawing at the branch that they're sitting on cutting and cutting away, but in the back of their minds, hoping desperately they never cut all the way through because it's a long plunge to the forest floor. Some of us may survive the fall, but they surely will not. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, the latest inflation numbers are in, and uh, it's not looking good. We've hit a 40-year high at 9.1%, thanks to this genius administration that we have. Our nation's authorities are now openly admitting to having completely missed the flashing red lights of inflation and this administration's failed economic policy. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admitted that she was wrong about the path inflation would take, saying, quote, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted energy and food prices and supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that at the time I didn't fully understand. Well, there you have it. Now I know you're, you're worried about affording basic necessities in the months to come, food, gas, shelter, all the rest of it, but uh, she didn't know it's not her fault. Cut her some slack. 
Well, it goes without saying that uh, you can't trust the so-called authorities on economic policy, which is why you should invest at least some of your money in gold and silver with Birch Gold Group. Protect your savings from a highly turbulent economy by diversifying your 401k or IRA into physical gold. It's not too late for you now to take action. Text Walsh to 989898 and get a free info kit on diversifying and protecting your savings with precious metals. Birch Gold Group has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. Text Walsh to 989898 and get real advice from Birch Gold today. Again, text Walsh to 989898 to claim your free, no-obligation info kit on protecting your savings with gold. All right, it's good to be uh, back in Nashville, finally back in front of the uh, trusty old sheet here. Uh, Made the 1,000-mile drive back, over 1,000 miles, actually, four kids. Though for the second half of the drive home, we we only had one kid. We dropped uh, the older three off with my parents for, for to spend the week there, spend a, you know a week with Nana and Grandpa. My youngest daughter is two years old, not old enough to to be away that long. So we're in the the weird position this week, um, Alyssa and I, of of um, having one kid, and we've never had one kid before because we we started off with two right off the bat, so we never experienced this. And I will admit that for the first day, we were pretty cocky about it. And, and, and we did, amongst ourselves, say some kind of judgmental things about parents who have just one kid and complain about how overwhelming it is and how hard it is. Because we have one kid, and we're like, what are we even supposed to do? This is so easy. Like, <laughs> we have two of us and one kid? But it was as if our two-year-old was listening to this and decided to, to humble us and punish us righteously for our arrogance because uh, she decided to take this week as an opportunity to stop sleeping. And maybe it's just that she looked around and realized that she's alone, so she needs to pick up the slack and be sort of irritating enough to compensate for the fact that her siblings aren't around. I don't know what it is. But last night, she wouldn't sleep. She was up repeatedly crying, and I went into her room, and she was uh, saying that she was too scared to sleep. And I said, there's nothing to be scared of. And then she told me that she heard a baby crying outside in the woods and a man laughing in her closet. And I thought, wow, that is pretty scary, actually. Now I can't sleep. And she asked me to go out into the woods and investigate the sound. And I said, I'm not doing it. You go out there. I'm not going out there. Are you kidding me? I've seen enough horror movies to know what happens if you're the guy who goes out into the woods to investigate the sound. So anyway, we brought her down. I brought her down into our bed. And she slept in our bed. And uh, uh, she was splayed out because this is how kids, kids sleep like, like they're in a synchronized swimming routine, and she's just moving all over the place, splayed out horizontally across the bed, kicking me in the chin all night long. And I know I'm in trouble now because there's nothing, this is one thing parents know, that if you take, if you if you let your toddler sleep in your bed, uh, it, it's like leaving food out for a stray cat. They're, they're never going to go away now. You're stuck with them there. So we're going to have her as a roommate until she's like eight years old. But we are getting what we deserve, I guess, for our, as I said, our arrogance. Um, you, I, I've been a parent long enough. I should know that never, you never say this, you know, oh, this is easy. Never say that. You're just asking for it. So we'll start with this for the past several weeks. Um, and long before that, we've been repeatedly told that banning abortion is especially an attack on racial minorities, right? We've, we've heard this many times. Uh, black women suffer the most from not being able to kill their children. We're told. But this line of attack, I guess, proved not very effective. And it just, it just sounds, it sounds wrong, doesn't it, to say that? So it seems like, like the left has abandoned it for now. 
and gone all the way to the other extreme. So this is what they do. Of course, if one narrative doesn't work, just try the exact opposite of that narrative. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if what you're saying from one sentence to the next is coherent or, or makes sense. So Alexandra Samuels is a reporter for 538, and she tweeted this uh, yesterday. She said, the fight over abortion rights is tied to the great replacement theory and fears that white people will become a minority. That fear never left the anti-abortion movement, which at its core has always been about upholding white supremacy. And she links to an article in 538 authored by herself and someone named Monica Potts titled, How the Fight to Ban Abortion is Rooted in the Great Replacement Theory. So here's how it begins. It says, it may not be immediately obvious how the fight over abortion rights is tied to the Great Replacement Theory, the debunked conspiracy theory promoted by some Republican politicians who claim that Democrats support more immigration to replace white American voters. But the explanation for, say, an alleged gaffe that overturning the constitutional right to an abortion is a historic victory of white life, quote unquote, or a concern that not enough white babies are being born in the U.S., can be found in the history of the anti-abortion movement. The movement and legal abortion has a long racist history, and like the Great Replacement Theory, it has roots in a similar fear that white people are going to be outnumbered by people believed to hold a lower standing in society. Those anxieties used to be centered primarily around various groups of European immigrants and newly emancipated slaves, but now they're focused on non-white Americans who, as a group, are on track to numerically outpace non-Hispanic white Americans by 2045, um, etc. and so forth. The anti-abortion movement at its core has always been about upholding white supremacy, right? Now, we have to, of course, stipulate at the outset once again that the so-called great replacement theory is not a theory, and it's not something that the right invented. It's something that the left came up with, and it's a, it's a thing that they're actually doing and that they've been very open about. They are importing voters from other countries. This is not, this is very clearly what they're doing. Uh, it is not a conspiracy theory. It's not a guess. It's not an opinion. It's just what they're doing. And they've often admitted it. You could just quote them directly talking about this. But that aside, um, you see how this narrative completely contradicts the one they were going with up until five seconds ago. Before it was, well, it's wrong to ban abortion because uh, black women, you know, in particular, quote unquote, need abortions. And now it's, uh, it's wrong to ban it because this is, all a, this, this is a conspiracy to increase the percentage of white people in the population. Well, this doesn't make any sense at all. Here's the figure that matters. Black women are 7% of the population, give or take. You know, the black population as a whole is about 13%. So women, we figure probably 7% 7 or so. And they account for, I think it's about 34% of abortions. So well over four times their population percentage. And what that means is that um, when you ban abortion, you are going to increase the black population as a percentage of the overall haul. A whole, much more than you're going to increase the white population as a percentage of the overall whole. That's just the fact of the matter. So uh, you, you, you could try to say whatever you want about pro-lifers, but the claim that, and whichever angle you're coming from, 
the claim that pro-lifers are racist and that the, the push to ban abortion is a racist conspiracy, it just doesn't make any sense. Given that every pro-lifer knows that you get rid of abortion, and that means that you're going to end up with more minorities, not less, as a, as a percentage. In fact, that's not just something that we're like aware of. That's something that we often talk about and observe how Planned Parenthood uh, was was born in you know as as a in eugenics. I mean, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was a eugenicist, and she believed in using abortion to get rid of what she considered to be the dregs of society. She was very open about that. In fact, the the early advocates of abortion were were all very open about their eugenicist leanings. They consider this to be one of the one of the great selling points of abortion. They, they've talked about it all the time. So this is something that it's it's uh, this is something pro lifers very often bring up. Get rid of abortion, and uh, racial minorities will end up being less of a minority than they are now. And you can look at the figures on this, and it's it's hard to estimate exactly, but. How many fewer black people are in the country today because of abortion? I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. And like I said, it'd be, it's, a, it's, it's a difficult thing to, you know, there's not an exact figure you can arrive at, but it's certainly millions. If not for abortion, there would be millions more black people in the country today than there currently are. So banning abortion is racist, right? Makes a lot of sense. All right, moving on to this. Dr. Fauci is uh, calling on Americans to, he's humming his uh, same old tune, calling on Americans to put masks on again. Let's listen to that. We're in a zone or a, or, a, or a county, state, or a city that has a very high level of dynamic of viral circulation. The CDC would recommend strongly that you wear a mask in a congregate indoor setting. And that would include schools, places of work, uh, anything that brings people together in a closed uh, environment. That is good public health practice. Um, I'll, I'll give you a no on that one. Not going to happen at all. But as we as we hear this this push to get us back in masks again, and and Fauci, he's just he's of course never going to let go of this because this is. This is uh, his last, you know, shot at relevance and power, and he's had more relevance and more power because of COVID than he ever enjoyed at any other point in his life, and um, that's obviously why he's been in government for so long. That's why almost everybody's in government because they want they want they want power, they want control. It's why you get into that line of work in the first place, and um, and so he's, he can't let go of it. You know, this is this is how he defines himself. But as this push, as we get this, once again, this push for, for masking, uh, we're going to hear more and more about so-called long COVID. And it seems like every month there's another study that discovers more, quote unquote, symptoms of long COVID. And so here's the latest. This is from uh, uh, an article in Study Finds. It says, hair loss and a low sex drive are joining the growing list of lingering symptoms people are dealing with after a case of COVID-19, a condition called long COVID. The major British study involved more than 
2 million people and adds these problems to a list that already includes brain fog and chronic fatigue. Now researchers have discovered that long COVID sufferers have experienced a much wider set of over 60 symptoms, including sexual dysfunction and alopecia. Uh, previous studies have found that the list could actually be closer to 200 symptoms. Uh, the, st the findings published in the journal Nature Medicine showed that patients with a confirmed record of coronavirus infection reported 62 symptoms much more frequently 12 weeks after their initial infection than those who did not contract COVID. Now, the fascinating thing about long COVID symptoms is that, well, a couple of things. Many of them are these kind of ambiguous, subjective brain fog, chronic fatigue, like I'm, I'm just feeling tired, I'm feeling foggy. It's hard to even describe that exactly, quantify it. Um, they're the kind of symptoms that pretty much anyone can be convinced they have. You could convince anyone in the country that they have brain fog and chronic fatigue. And actually, that is that that's that's just a that's that's a symptom of living in modern society, where you're you're constantly staring at screens all the time, makes your brain foggy. Uh, almost nobody is getting the, the amount of sleep they should be getting. That can be traced back to the screens. So. These long COVID symptoms often are things like that. And then there are also things that, that happen to people anyway, like brain fog and fatigue, but, you know, hair loss. Um, all these things are just normal, especially as you get older. So remember this. Anything that happens after COVID is long COVID. Like anything that happens to you, any symptom that you suffer from after you have COVID is long COVID. That's basically, I mean, 200 symptoms. So that's really just anything at all. Any sensation, any physical event, anything at all that happens to you after you have COVID is long COVID. But nothing that happens after you get the vaccine is a side effect of the vaccine. So that's the way that this works. This is science, folks, okay? Literally everything that happens after COVID is long COVID. Literally nothing that happens after the vaccine is a side effect of the vaccine. Good science. Here's some more good science. And this, I think, is um, a very interesting article, especially considering what we talked about last week with the, uh, the study on antidepressants and how antidepressants have been prescribed to millions of people for decades based on a myth, the myth of the chemical imbalance that causes depression. Well, something similar seems to potentially be happening with Alzheimer's. This is from uh, NBC. It says, allegations that part of a key 2006 study of Alzheimer's disease may have been fabricated, have rocked the research community, calling into question the validity of the study's influential results. Science Magazine said Thursday that it uncovered evidence that images in the much-cited study published 16 years ago in the journal Nature may have been doctored. The findings have thrown skepticism on the work of uh, Sylvain Lesney, who's a neuroscientist and associate professor at the University of Minnesota and his research which fueled interest in a specific assembly of proteins as a promising target for treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Lesney didn't respond to NBC News' request for comment, nor did he provide comments to uh, Science Magazine. Science said that it found more than 20 suspect papers by this guy and identified more than 70 instances of possible image tampering in his studies. A whistleblower, Dr. Matthew Schrag, who's a neuroscientist at Vanderbilt University, raised concern last year about the possible manipulation of images in multiple papers. Carl Hurrup, who's a professor of neurobiology at the University of Pittsburgh Brain Institute, who wasn't involved in the investigation, said the findings are really bad for science. 
Uh, he said, it's never shameful to be wrong in science. A lot of the best science was done by people being wrong and proving it. If they were wrong and then, and then why they're wrong, what is completely toxic is to be fraudulent. Now, what makes this so bad is that we, we, this is, they're saying this was an influential study, which probably understates you know, the case quite a bit because people were being treated for Alzheimer's based on this study that was done. And according to this new research, again, it's not just that they were wrong about it, it's that the, the results were falsified. So this is a, an enormous scandal that calls for congressional hearings, investigations, trials. People should be going to prison for this. And we, we have to know, is it, was it just this one guy who falsified the findings and nobody else knew about it? That seems kind of hard to believe. We're talking about over 15 years with, uh, with you know, Alzheimer's being treated according to this study. And the, there was the, apparently the results in the study were falsified and no, nobody else knew or even suspected it, except for this one guy who did it. Um, that's really hard to believe. So there need to be hearings. There need to be, I mean, this is, a, this is a major scandal that comes on the heels. It's like, this was a two days after the antidepressant scandal, which was also a major scandal. That we're, that's, that, that we're talking about billions of dollars caught up in, in, into this fraudulently. It implicates the pharmaceutical industry, doctors. I mean, everybody's caught up in this web. And if we were taking it seriously, then we need investigations into this to find out who exactly is responsible, what happened. People need to pay the price. But here's, but here's the really helpless thing that we all know, that nothing will happen when it comes to either of these, especially with the antidepressant thing, but, but even with this as well. My prediction is nothing happens at all. Nobody is held accountable. They'll talk about doing investigations. They'll, maybe, maybe they will have a couple of hearings. Who knows? But nothing will happen. I mean, the, uh, the corruption in the pharmaceutical industry, it would be impossible to overstate. And as we talked about yesterday, one of the reasons why there is very little accountability it's because there aren't as many people in the country calling for it. You know, if the public pressure built enough, then there would have to be some kind of accountability to assuage all the outrage. But I think for a lot of people, you know, they are dependent on the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we, we live in a, in a country of, full of uh, drug addicts. Even though many of them are dependent on legal drugs that are prescribed to them and they go to Rite Aid to pick them up but they're drug addicts. And so I think they just, they don't really want to know the truth. And so we're all kind of whistling past the graveyard with all this stuff. All right, this is a, an article from The Guardian that I wanted to mention. This is a, written by a guy named Sebastian Cohn talking about his experiences with monkeypox. And uh, he says, I got monkeypox and it's been a total nightmare. I only need to read like the first paragraph or two of this so you get the idea. When New York Pride festivities kicked off on tw the 24th of June, I was aware that monkeypox was an emerging issue, especially for gay men. But I was also under the impression that the, the number of cases in the city was relatively small. 
What I didn't understand how abs- was how absolutely dismal testing capacity was. At that point, the city only had capacity to process 10 tests a day. Then he says, I had sex with several guys over the weekend. Then a week later, on the 1st of July, I started feeling fatigued. I had a high fever with chills and muscle aches, and my lymph nodes were so swollen that they were protruding two inches out of my throat. First, I took a COVID self-test that was negative. Then I started suspecting monkeypox. I texted a friend. I'm just sitting here waiting for the rash to start. Uh, and then it, we go into a lot of details you probably don't need about the, the rash and that broke out all over his body in particular and certain parts of his body that, you know, you can imagine. We don't need to describe them. And, um, and, he had, and it turns out that he had monkeypox and it was, a, it was a, a terrible ordeal, which I can imagine based on his description that it was. But who does he blame? You know, he doesn't blame himself, certainly. He blames the city. He blames what, who, anybody else, the testing capacity. And yet he says right at the, the start of the article that uh, he had sex with several guys over the weekend. Just kind of a toss-off sentence, like it's nothing. Oh, yeah, well, I had sex with several guys. That, that's how I celebrate pride. Well, here's the thing. Even if monkeypox didn't exist, which it did, and you admit at the outset that you knew that it was out there, you knew that it was that it was flaring up in New York, and yet you still went out and had sex with several guys. But even if there was no monkeypox, that kind of behavior is reckless and dangerous regardless because of all the other diseases that you can get. Um, and this kind of behavior is why the gay community is far more susceptible to any range of diseases. It's not just monkeypox or HIV, though it is those. Many other STDs as well. And yet, so kind of on the theme here of the, uh, the medical industry, you know, fraud, fraudulent uh, behavior on the medical industry, on the part of the medical industry and the public, so-called public health experts, you know, this is, as, as much as they lectured us during COVID for like going to the grocery store, uh, not wearing a mask, you know, even if you're at, well, you know, if, you, if you gather even in your own home with your friends and family who don't live in your home, you don't put a mask on, but you're going to get lectured for that. What do they say? They still say it. You don't put a mask on, your, uh, so you're not just hurting yourself, you're killing people. Right? You're killing everyone's, you're a, you're a, killing everyone's grandparents. And yet nobody wants to say to people like Sebastian Cohn, you know what, it is incredibly reckless and wrong to go out and just have sex with random people. No matter what diseases are circulating. Because there are always going to be, whether it's monkeypox or any of the other dozens of diseases that you can contract and also spread. That is a lifestyle choice that nobody should be engaging in ever. And you know, the thing is, it should be a lot easier to stop doing that than it was for the rest of society to stop living their everyday normal lives for two years. All right, moving to this. This is from The uh, Independent. It says, Tucker Carlson has some unique advice for his young male fans. Drop out of college and have more children than you can afford. The popular but controversial Fox News host, himself a bow-tie-wearing product of boarding schools, debate societies, and a liberal arts college, made the comments on Sunday, 
During the interview, Carlson and host Daniel Schmidt, a student at the University of Chicago, bonded over what the YouTube host called a pervasive amount of anti-white sentiment. Okay, so this is just a hit piece bouncing all over the place. Uh, that doesn't matter. What does matter is this clip, which has made the rounds online. And there are people that are upset about it as well. Because Tucker Carlson said it, which means people are upset about it. But let's listen to the advice that he gives. Go ahead. Achievement comes through commitment and responsibility. So my advice to young people, particularly young men, is just dive face first into it. Like drop out of college. College is ridiculous unless you're moving towards some very specialized degree that you can only get in college if you want to be a veterinarian or a physicist or something. But if you're in humanities, you know, I can give you a list of 100 books. You can find it on the Internet and you'll be better educated than you would be at whatever stupid college you go to. A. B. Get married. And, you know, choose wisely, but don't overthink it. You know, don't overthink it. People overthink it. Like if you're compatible with someone and, and you can smell that, you can make it work. And by the way, it's never easy because men and women fundamentally don't understand each other. That's the whole joy in it. That's why marriage makes you grow is because you don't really understand the other person. So you have to try every day to decipher what that person's saying. Have more children than you can afford. Take a job you're not qualified for. Like, go balls out. You know, just go balls out. I don't know. What is everyone waiting for? You know, have some adventure in your life. Do something crazy. I mean it. And and I don't mean, you know, go to Bali. Skip Bali, please. Uh, well, of course, people are upset about the, what he says there, the insight he provides, because it's, it's true, right? And, and if you provide true insight into life, you're always going to upset people these days. He touches on a couple of things there that are really important. One, one, the one that he says, uh, you know, don't overthink it when it comes to marriage. And this is something, this is a drum that I've been beating for years. Um, and he's exactly right about that. And if you listen to people who are actually married and have been married successfully and are in happy marriages, you're all, this is, this is, this is you know, there's wide agreement among actually married people. Um, it's only people that aren't married that, that are scandalized by this kind of thing. And that should tell you something. Is it doesn't mean that you know you meet someone and you kind of like them, so you get married the next day. Okay, no one's saying that. We we'll run off to Las Vegas and get married in a drive-through wedding after one day. No one is saying that. But if you if you meet them and uh, you like them and you're attracted to them and you're compatible, and also you you note that you have you know your your fundamental values align which is something that you can discover about someone early on by actually like talking to them. If you have real conversations with them rather than inane small talk all the time, you can discover all of that very quickly. And, um, and then at that point, you're like, what, what else is there to wait for? What are you waiting around? I mean, you can see these days people think, well, okay, I'm attracted to them. I like them. We get along. We're compatible. We have our fundamental values do align. Uh, but uh, we we need to date for 17 years, you know, and we got to move in together. And because we, we, we gotta, I have to know every last detail about this person. What if they have? What if there are things about them that annoy me? Right? I got to find that out first. No, you don't need to find it out because I'll tell you the answer right now. There are there, be, there are a ton of things that annoy you about that because they're a per, they're another person. They're a whole other human being, and so they're you're not going to be compatibility is not going to be 100. percent there are going to be difficulties. You're going to be bumping up against each other on various different topics all the time. That's just part of living with someone. You work through that. That's part of marriage. And the thing is, it doesn't even matter. Like, 
you can spend years with someone getting to know every last detail about them. And, uh, and then you say, okay, we're ready to get married and you get married. Well, you still got to start, right? Eventually you're going to have your first day of marriage. doesn't matter how much time you spent with them ahead of time. Once you get married, you're, you're, you're married now, the game changes. You're a rookie. I don't care if you knew that person for 15 years ahead of time. You're basically in the same boat as someone who knew their spouse for 15 minutes. Because now you're starting at square one. You got to start at square one. And you have your first day of marriage together. And then your next, the next day and the day after that. And you got to put the work in every single day. It doesn't matter how good things seemed heading into it. If you're not willing to put the work in every day, then it's not going to work out. Uh, and then the other thing that he says that I that is a is a another really important point that I'm always trying to stress is this idea of like having a sense of adventure. And I think that this was advice directed particularly at men. It applies to women too, but but I think especially to men, having a sense of uh, adventure. And that's the point about it, it makes about you know have more kids than you can afford, take a job you aren't qualified for. The point is. Um, it's not to be reckless. It's just to stop calibrating and triangulating and stalling all the time, which is what so many young people, young men especially, they, they, they waste early adulthood, young adulthood stalling, you know, just waiting around for a sign from heaven that now you can move forward and actually live your life. At a certain point, you got to jump in and take some risks. Yeah, have a sense of adventure. Which means, like, move out of the house. Go do something. Frustrates me to no end when I hear these young guys uh, complaining even about, you know, well, there's no, there's no jobs, there's no opportunities around where I live. Or there, and there, there, there are no people, you know, there's no women, there's no good women around where I live, which there probably are, but, you know, you haven't looked hard enough or you're looking in the wrong places, but whatever. Okay, even if that's true, then move somewhere else. You're a young, single guy. If you're a young, single, able-bodied guy, you have no dependence. You have no serious responsibilities in life. Now, there could be some complicating situations for some people. Maybe you have an ailing parent that you can't move away from. Okay, if that's the case for you, then that's different. But if that's not the case, if you don't have anyone dependent on you, and you're young and single and a man, and you're able-bodied, then you can go anywhere and try anything. Just move. Go somewhere. If it doesn't work out, go somewhere else. Worst case scenario, you get somewhere, I can't find a job. I'll be, okay, so you're living out of your car for a few weeks. Whatever. You're fine. You'll survive. It, that's, that's the adventure. That's the kind of thing that, you know, you do things like that and you take risks. And then uh, later on in life, you, you, those are the kind of stories you tell your kids and your grandkids. But I think for a lot of people, they're never going to have any stories because, like, they spent their 20s. What are you going to tell your, your grandkids about? All the time you spend in your mom's house playing video games? You're not going to have any grandkids anyway. So I think that's a great, great moment there from um, Tucker Carlson. And that's a great time to get to our comment section. Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. All right, let's see. Uh, message from Kyle says, Matt, why is your show so inconsistent lately? Another day off on Monday? What's going on? 
Well, I'm sorry, Kyle. Went on vacation at the beginning of July. Then over the weekend, like I said, we drove over a thousand miles, okay? So I had to, I had to miss a day for that. Is, that. is that okay? I mean, cut me some slack, man. My, you know, here's the thing. And I, I've gotten a lot of messages from people like this, especially after taking the day off on Monday. People are very upset at me. My workaholic brain already makes me feel guilty for taking any time off at all. And then I get messages from people that are mad at me for it. And it, it just does, it doesn't help, okay? You guys are really encouraging some unhealthy behaviors. On the other hand, I understand that running a cult, you know, running the SBG cult is a responsibility. And there are expectations that come with that. So I understand that as well. Um, Austin Fan for Life says, I would love to see Matt in charge of HR just to see someone explain a pronoun change just for Matt to end the meeting with, you don't get your own pronouns. I'd love to be the head of HR, but, um, and I've made that offer here at the Daily Wire many times, but whatever company made the mistake of giving me that job would be bankrupted by lawsuits in like three days. So as much as I would love it, probably not going to happen. Tin Inks says, uh, I know someone on Ritalin slash Adderall is the same logic as I learned about gender from talking to trans people. I suppose people have always been moved more by stories than by reason. Yeah, you're, that's correct. But especially when it comes to, as you point out, when it comes to the, the issue of pharmaceuticals, it's just this, people relying on anecdotes. It's a scourge. People that can't see beyond the anecdotes. Well, I know someone and they took it and they were bad. Yeah, that's, that's an anecdote. That's one person's experience and that's fine. But you do, you have to expand beyond that and look at the overall scope of the issue. Uh, J.R. Roper says, depression discussion. Are you getting adequate sleep? Are you getting enough, if, if any, real exercise? Are you eating healthy foods? Let's explore what you think is healthy, by the way. Are you saturating your mind in social media? Have you taken the time to really assess yourself? How are your relationships? Are you limiting your partner to just one person? How is your financial situation? And if necessary, what do you plan to do to improve it? Do you have a hobby? Drinking and binging Netflix is not considered a hobby. Are you overweight? I could go on. Not all, but a vast majority are not willing to put in any work to improve their health and well-being. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. And, and the thing is, if there's any place for these kinds of uh, drugs to treat depression or anxiety or any problem like that, if there's any place for them, it would not come and should not come until, that, until you've gone down that whole checklist and you've addressed every single one of the issues that you're talking about. I mean, the idea that we're giving anyone antidepressants without first making sure that they're getting enough sleep, that they're getting exercise, that they're eating well, that all these things. Like that should be the very first thing that we do. Take care of all of those, see how you feel, and then come back to me. That's what the doctors should be saying if they really cared about treating people and helping people. Here's a checklist of lifestyle, of better you know, lifestyle choices that you could be making so go fix that, make better choices in your life, and then come back. And it's no one is saying that it's a 100% guarantee that if you fix all those problems, you're going to feel better. You might not, but you got to start there. That should be the starting point, shouldn't it? Just giving people drugs while they're still making horrible life choices? And, and, and here, here's the thing. You know, I, I would add another thing to the checklist, which is, are you a mortal human being living in this veil of tears called life? 
Uh, and that's something that we can all check yes on that. We all are. And this is one of the, the most important salient facts that is rarely discussed when it comes to the depression conversation. And I brought this up before, but I, I don't know if I'm even articulating it the right way because it's so fundamental and basic. But it's just something that we always overlook. But we can't overlook it. And this is why I, I say that the, the, the psychiatry industry is, is starting from some extremely flawed presuppositions. Okay? By ignoring that, and I know that how this sounds when I say it, okay? But you get a way for me to flesh the whole point out. Depression is actually a perfectly reasonable response to the fact of life. Because life is very difficult. It's hard to live. It just is. There are so many things in life that can make people miserable. And, you know, for, for justifiable reasons. You, 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 and you don't have to go and, and look at the most extreme tragedies you can imagine. Just, just think about the people that you know in your own life and all the things that they're dealing with. I was just talking about this with my, with my wife, that they're, for whatever reason, you know, as we get older and, you know, we get into middle age and um, there are so many people around us in our lives who are just really struggling. Their marriages are falling apart and financial uh, cataclysms and all these kinds of things. You just come along with, with living life. And um, we pretend, and here's, here's the flawed presupposition the psychiatry industry makes. We pretend that being content and happy is the normal, most natural, most effortless thing, right? Like that should be the baseline setting, but, but it's not, right? And then and we say, well, if you're not content and happy all the time, then there's something wrong with you, with you in your mind and you need a drug for it. But that's not the case. How, how can anyone look around at life and at the world and say that, well, you know, everyone should basically be content and happy all the time? Really? Have you seen the world? Have you seen life? Do you realize that you are a mortal being living here temporarily and then you're going to die? I mean, it's all these things. So it's actually the reverse is true. Being kind of miserable and sad and down, that is default setting for a lot of people. Being content and happy is the thing that takes effort and work. Which, which doesn't mean that, that people shouldn't be happy or that we should leave people in our misery. No, it's just that we should start by realizing that being kind of sad and miserable is a, is a normal state, actually. Being happy is better, but it takes work to get there. And you, you got to be able to, you got to put the work in and you have to know how to work for it. And that's something that therapists and counselors should be helping with, and maybe a few of them do. But a great number of them aren't, aren't going to put in that. They don't want to put the effort in themselves. And so they look for the shortcut, which is the drug. Well, this is uh, the moment in the show where in years past, I may have read you an ad for Harry's Razors. I would have said, hey, you uh, millions of listeners, uh, I love Harry's. Go out and buy one. But I'm not going to do that because I don't love Harry's. I hate Harry's. If you don't know the story, Harry's used to advertise on our shows until someone here, I don't know who, said that uh, boys are boys and girls are girls. This was just a unspeakable thing to say. And it was too much for our sponsor who pulled their ads due to values misalignment. Well, we're not going to promote products that hate your values 
So we did the only thing that made sense. We launched our own razor company, Jeremy's Razors. Every Jeremy's Razors kit comes with a premium razor, two sets of blades, shaving cream, and uh, aftershave balm as well. It's a beautiful thing thing to behold. And over 70,000 kits have shipped already, including to my house, because despite what you may think, I actually do use a razor sometimes. So instead of telling you I'm a big fan of Harry's, I'm here to tell you about the thousands of ex-Harry's fans who've literally thrown their razors in the trash and switched to Jeremy's. Do not go to harrys.com. Go to ihateharrys.com and get your Jeremy's Razors Founders Kit. It's a time to stop giving your money to woke corporations that hate you. Give it to Jeremy instead. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. I hate to end on such a dour note, but uh, something terrible has happened. Tragedy has struck. And I don't know how else to put this. So I'm just going to come out and say it. Full Frontal has been canceled. Now, I know what you're thinking. What's Full Frontal? Well, it's the late night comedy show hosted by Samantha Bee. And I know what you're thinking. Who is Samantha Bee? Well, maybe stop asking questions for a minute and just listen. CNN has the heartbreaking story. It says, after seven seasons, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee will not be returning to TBS this fall. The show announced Monday on its official Twitter account. uh, The talk show has been on the air since February 2016 on TBS, home to a host of syndicated shows, including The Big Bang Theory and Friends. Uh, They said, quote, to our loyal fans, we love you. You're very special. Go home and go home in peace. The show's statement continued. During its run, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee was nominated four times in the Best Variety Talk Series Emmy category. One of the show's specials, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee Presents Not the White House Correspondence Dinner, earned an Emmy for outstanding writing for a variety special in 2017. Asked about the reason for the cancellation, a TBS spokesperson told CNN, quote, as we continue to shape our new programming strategy, we've made some difficult business-based decisions. I'm sorry, but I just don't buy it. Business-based decision? Sounds like code for sexism to me. I mean, I can't imagine why else they would cancel the show, especially since it's been on such a roll recently. I mean, just to show you what I mean, let's play a short clip of the uproarious comedic monologue she delivered about the Roe decision a couple of weeks ago. Just get ready for some gut-busting comedy, folks. Listen. Medical professionals say that these prosecutions are often based on faulty science and disproportionately hurt low-income women and women of color, which at this point is basically the slogan for our country. And if you think Republicans will stop at abortion itself, well, bless your heart. Some red state legislators in places like Idaho are even prepared to outlaw some of the most popular forms of birth control. You heard that right, outlaw birth control. What's next, outlaw condoms? Oh wait, that's actually a great name for a condom company. When Republicans propose bills that suggest life begins at fertilization, they're making the argument that just having an IUD could be a form of murder. It is not. It is a form of making sure the boyfriend you had in your early 20s doesn't stay in your life forever. I'll be honest, I feel hopeless. I feel rage that every woman in America has been left to make a plan for how to take care of themselves in a country that values a zygote more than them. I feel like my throat hurts. It's probably just the COVID. Now, was any of that remotely funny? No. Was it uncomfortable and embarrassing to watch? Yes. Is Samantha Bee kind of like the socially unaware dinner guest who keeps launching into long stories that are supposed to be funny or interesting, but instead are just boring? And the more she talks, the more awkward it gets as everyone else at the table shoots glances at each other, each praying silently that she'll stop talking so that they can get the conversation back on track. Yes, 100%. 
But is that a good excuse to cancel the only female late night comedy host? Absolutely not. Truly, there's no telling why exactly this decision has been made after seven seasons. Some have speculated that they're canceling the show because it's terrible and has no audience. Some have pointed out that its ratings were so low that even the WNBA felt sorry for it. Some, in fact, have actually speculated that Samantha Bee was bankrolled by the WNBA because it made the league's ratings look better by comparison. I don't know if that's true or not. There are some who've said that uh, Samantha Bee's brand as this scowling, humorless wine mom of late night just didn't resonate with viewers. Some have said that if they wanted to be yelled at by an ill-tempered middle-aged blonde woman, they just go work the cash register at a grocery store. Some have pointed to the fact that her show made less money than a child's overpriced lemonade stand. Some have said that TBS could replace its full frontal revenue just by holding like a yard sale once a month. Some have even claimed that comedy shows are supposed to be funny. But they say Samantha Bee's show is about as funny as watching someone drown. They've said that there have been house fires funnier than Samantha Bee. There are some who said that, that, that the Black Plague was a hilarious slapstick farce compared to Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. Some have said many other things like this, and I find them all offensive. I do not endorse any of those statements. I am simply telling you what other people have said, probably. As for myself, I can tell you that I had faith, a deep, abiding faith, that Samantha Bee would at some point during some episode, managed to tell a funny joke. She tried for seven seasons and failed. But you know what stand-up comedians always say? This is their motto. They say, if at first you bomb, get back up there and bomb again. And keep bombing over and over and over again forever. That's either stand-up comedians or Al-Qaeda. I'm not sure which one. But if you keep going and keep telling jokes, however bad they might be, statistically, it just seems almost certain that eventually you'll stumble upon a funny one, right? Samantha B never got there because TBS canceled her before she had a chance. They only gave her six years, which is not nearly long enough. NBC has given Seth Meyers more time than that to figure it out, and he's still trying. Which means that this is sexism once again rearing its ugly head and telling a woman that she isn't funny. Which, of course, is true. It usually is. But she could have been funny one day. I believed in her. I was watching and rooting for her. Well, I wasn't watching. Nobody was, but I was rooting. So I washed my hands of this travesty. I had nothing to do with it. This isn't my fault. It isn't Samantha Bee's fault. You know what? It's your fault and TBS's fault for not supporting her and believing in her. And because of your callous disregard, Samantha Bee hit the glass ceiling. And rather than breaking through it, she splattered against it like a bug on a windshield. For that reason, you are all canceled. Shame on you all. How dare you? That'll do it for us today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Jeff Tomlin. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. 
Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Today on the Ben Shapiro Show, in anticipation of a second quarter of negative growth, the Biden administration redefines recession itself. The collapse of New York City continues apace, and we explore two very different stories about racism in America. That's today on the Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. Mm-hmm. 